Welcome to the Fight for Grade Level Reading. I'm Brian Reese. This week we have Dr. Michelle Borba, a former teacher and author of several books. I'll be talking to her about why empathy is a learned trait and why it's important for children's social and academic success. And remember, we'd love to hear from you. You can share your experiences, tip us off to programs or efforts that you think have been especially successful in the fight for grade level reading, or just let us know what you think about the podcast by connecting on Facebook at facebook.com slash fight for GLR or emailing us at fight for GLR at heraldtribune.com. You can also find more episodes of the podcast and other grade level reading content online at heraldtribune.com slash fight for GLR. Hi, we're with Dr. Michelle Borba, former teacher, public speaker, consultant, and author of several books, including Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. And you're in Sarasota today as part of the annual event that 40 Carats Family Center does. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. Today, there was just a packed room full of educators, directors, teachers, counselors on how do we raise up a stronger generation of kids. And tonight is hopefully a packed house of parents of what we can do together to make sure that our kids have heart as well as mind. One thing I was fascinated about in the book is that, you know, empathy is not just having heart. It also has real world effects that provide success for some kids. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. I think the biggest misnomer is that empathy is soft and fluffy. And what we're seeing right now is, uh, uh, uh. The best thing is we know is it gives kids a tremendous advantage. You want an employable kid? Mm -hmm. The number one at the top of the list is perspective taking for the year 2020. Client Customers are looking for, get into the shoes and figure out how I feel. You want a child who's happier? It's all based on relationships. How Mm -hmm. about a mentally healthier kid? Empathy is huge. Empathy seems to be the best antidote we have to bullying, racism, getting along with others. And it is really at a point of we should be concerned. It's at a 40% dip right now in American kids in the last 30 years, while narcissism has gone up 58%. How does empathy affect academic performance specifically? One-on-one, it's great. First of all, number one is we know that children who are critical thinkers, Mm -hmm. who are able to be in that classroom, who can think a little bit more in depth, have that empathy and also have the ability to take perspective taking. See, empathy has different parts to it. One part is the affective part where I feel with you. I get a little teary-eyed when I read Charlotte's Web. I understand where you're coming from. But perspective taking is the cognitive side of empathy, and that gives our kids an enormous edge in a classroom. They can understand where both sides were coming from as they're reading history, science, math, they're better and able to raise up their hand and, and hear different points of view. If you have a stronger emotional vocabulary, which is the first habit of empathy, we also know that children are better critical thinkers. So there's, we now know it's not either or, but we want our kids to be smart, so let's take them all to the tutor. But we also want them to have heart. We put the two together and we have a win-win with a kid who's going to do well in a classroom, but also in life. It's clear, reading your book, that you were a teacher because your book is so well organized and it's every chapter covers one particular thing and then there's exercises at the end and steps to take and all that. It's, it's, it's an amazing read because it's very straightforward and it's all stuff that both educators and parents definitely can do. Thank you. The goal was to let us all know as teachers and parents and community people that our kids do need empathy. But we also need to take a moment to realize it's teachable 
But right. it's not a program. It's not an app. It's just ways to weave it into our families and to our schools. And that's what Unselfie does. There's like over 300 ideas that are easy, no-cost, simple ways that's to right. help our kids be better people. Like you said in the book, we're wired for it, but it is a learned trait. And so let's go through the nine essential habits. Mm-hmm. Number one is emotional literacy. Being able to read somebody's feelings and without being able to know, oh, daddy sounds tired because of his voice tone, or mommy looks stressed because she's holding her shoulders over, or her face doesn't have a happy face. Well, you can't have empathy unless you can be able to read somebody else's pain or sorrow or happiness. And when you do, you're more likely to be able to step in and help. Or be able to feel with them. What's taking that down? We're looking down at screens. We're not looking face-to-face at each other. The simplest beginning strategy on that one is just talk feelings with your kids. Make it more natural. You're watching Inside Out together. Good. Watch Inside Out. And then talk about the the feelings and the emotions. You're reading Charlotte's Web, and I hope you do read. But keep reading to your child. How would you feel if you were Charlotte? Oh, let's look at this picture book when Sally gets mad, really, really mad. Make your face look like Sally's. Those are just intentional, simple ways to weave into what we're already doing. And it takes our kids up a notch. Yeah, it it starts with them understanding their own feelings, or at least it helps them understand their own feelings, too. Which also helps with behavioral issues and any number of other things. Yes. Next would be moral identity. Empathy needs a moral rudder. That mm-hmm. means that you're more likely to step in and do the right thing that every parent wants right. without the parent reminding them to do so if you see yourself as a caring person. And one of the simplest ways to do that is ask yourself, do you have a caring mantra in your home? One of the easiest things tonight when I'm going to be talking about to the parents is one one little girl said the, the greatest thing that my parents did is one night when I was six, they said everybody get down to the family room and there was all these marking pens and poster boards and then dad said we're going to sit here and talk about what kind of family we want to be remembered for oh wow and then they brainstormed and they came up with all these words and dad said we can't be them all what's the most important so my brothers and i my mom and dad we all chose caring and that's how we became the caring perlins that's amazing and and then i said to her so how'd you remember it she said well it's impossible not to my mother must have said it 50 (laughs) times a day remember where the caring perlins where the caring perlins hey where the caring perlins pretty soon she said it so much you became it. Right. And I think that's a real gold mine. Figure out how you want your kids to become and then be intentional about reminding them and modeling it yourself. Empathy needs a moral rudder, and that is moral identity that pushes kids to do the right thing. Right. And also in that section, you talked about aligning praise with character. Oh, I love how you read the book. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> yes, because we praise so often. As soon as they walk in, what you get? What you get? We yeah. praise the tests. We praise their activities. But we don't ask nearly enough, what kind of thing did you do? So first of all, flip it. Second of all, when you see your child do something that legitimately is kind or caring or respectful or responsible, use the term because values are going dormant in today's world right now. That was being caring. Then always use the word because. Because you took the time to ask grandma how she mm-hmm. was feeling. Oh, my gosh, did you see the smile on her face? When children hear the term, second of all, they realize the impact of the difference it made on somebody else, they're more likely to repeat it. And that's what we're looking for is the pro-social kid. And then perspective taking, which is essentially just putting putting yourself in other people's shoes. Putting yourself in other people's shoes. But Martin Hoffman has spent 40 years studying this one at NYU. And he said the single greatest way to help your child with that one is using the right discipline. Mm -hmm. We're so quick to give them the time out. But research says it ain't the time out. It's the two seconds afterwards. I'm disappointed in that behavior, in the behavior, not in the kid. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them the why. Because in this family, we're the caring Perlins. 
Sure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And then ask the, how would you feel if that happened to you? What would you need in order to feel better? So go do it. What Hoffman discovered is that not only do you have a more empathetic child, you have a better behaved kid. Mm-hmm. And they're almost more likely to adopt your values. So simple, using the right discipline. The next habit is, I think, my favorite because it appeals to something very deep inside me, and that's moral imagination, which you say one of the best ways to get moral imagination is through reading. I loved this one myself. The two of us are nodding our heads profusely because is there anything more glorious than a wonderful children's literature selection? When you stop and you think about it uh, as an adult – Go back to where you were as a kid. What do you remember most of those books like Charlotte's Web or Stone Fox or whatever it was? You cried because you felt. But it's the key of it is the moral imagination. The new research says not only does it activate the part of our brain where compassion is, it actually lights it up if it is literary fiction. That's mm-hmm. not a beach read. Mm-hmm. That is a stronger book that really has a moral dilemma in it that also has your ability to feel with the character – The average child now in the United States stops reading out loud for pleasure at age nine, and the average parent stops reading out loud to their child at around the age of nine. I think there's a real strong connection. Don't stop reading to your child. You're doing a a little journal or journey, excuse me, with your kids, then go do a book on tape. Listen to Harry Potter together and talk about it. Uh, Also, we do know that film, the right kind of film, the clips or an image of a great image can activate our heart and galvanize it or take it down. So watch what your children are watching. Watch what your children are reading. Yeah, I mean, it builds also on the previous habits you listed. I mean, perspective taking, you're, you're really identifying with these characters so you can put yourself in their shoes and feel what they're feeling. You know what? You just nailed something. And that is empathy lies on a scaffold. Mm -hmm. And their goal is, when I came up with these nine habits, was to take our children from the first one is just identifying feelings to finally getting them out the door at habit number nine. So they're the altruistic child. Well, you don't start altruistic. Each one of these feeds on the other habit. And that's why moral imagination is so glorious, because it also works with the the rest of the habits we've been talking about. I'm kind of a part-time Buddhist. And the next two really kind of fit this uh, self-regulation, which is essentially most of what you talk about is mindfulness. Yes, it is. It's exactly it. And I learned that habit in Tibet. Uh, And the most amazing thing is there's such compassion Mm -hmm. because they daily do mindful meditation. Well, now University of Madison, Wisconsin has brought the monks. Dalai Lama sent them Mm -hmm. over to Madison, Wisconsin, put them in MRIs and notice, oh, my gosh, because they're doing that mindful meditation that doesn't cost anything, it's just practice daily, the part of their brain where compassion is, is actually increased. So find what works for your child. But I think one of the most critical habits today's children need is self-regulation, helping them learn to cope. Unselfie has dozens of ideas, but the key is figuring out which one works for your child and then practicing it over and over and over and over and over until your child can do it without you. That's good parenting. It's important to have those other steps that you've talked about previously, because if you can't identify your own feelings, if you can't kind of put yourself in other people's shoes, then it's very difficult to see how your behavior is affecting both you and other people. Exactly. They all just kind of map together. In fact, that's what we do know about empathy. The first step is you have to develop it. Mm -hmm. And those are the first steps. Then you have to practice it. Right. And if that's you keep practicing it over and over and over and over, it just is too cognitive. It's not a lecture and it's not a worksheet. It's being able to feel and experience it until finally the last step is you can live it. 
Yeah, That's it's, what you're naming for. Help your child do it without you. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you need the language first in yes. order to figure out all the other stuff or learn all the other stuff. Uh, then practicing kindness is yes. the next one. So simple. But what we do know is that a child just practices it over and over. He begins to, after a while, realize the power of kindness, seeing the impact on somebody else. And then he develops the caring mindset. Mm-hmm. And that's what Nancy Eisenberg says from Arizona is so critical. Your child has to see yourself as a caring person. Right. And that only comes from a lot of practice. And so after a while, what will happen is you've got this glorious kid in your home who's wanting to act right because it's in his heart. Right, and you're setting them up for that. You're yes. basically setting them up, giving them the the tools, and then putting them in situations where they can practice and see that repeatedly until they start to take it on themselves, basically. The easiest thing I've ever seen any parent do on that one, my girlfriend, mm-hmm. she decided when her kids were little that she wanted her kids to grow up and be smart in classroom, but also kind, mm-hmm. too. Not either or, but both. So she came up with what is called the two-kind rule. Every day you leave this home, you are to say or do at least two kind things. And they always brainstorm what are kind things. In fact, she had a centerpiece in the middle of her table where when they were little, they were drawing what are kind things. As they get older, they were more and more sophisticated. Well, they just kept doing it and doing it and doing it until, guess what? They're now in their 30s. Right. They're very successful. But let me tell you, they're very kind girls sure. because they've been practicing it. Yeah. Well, next is collaboration. Yep. I mean, and this is something that happens in schools a lot more than when I was a kid. There's a lot more collaborative projects and something that my son in particular had trouble dealing with because he knew he could do it. But when he has all these other people doing parts of it, it was difficult. It's something he had to learn to do. Because it's a we world, not a me world. Yeah. And what the latest generation stats, in fact, every generation of kids from baby boomers to millennials to Generation Z and now iGen or Y, whatever you want to call them, what they've actually discovered is this generation that just graduated is highly individualistic and very competitive. Well, that's good, but it doesn't make them employable right. because it's a we world and all every employer says we want we kids. So mm-hmm. one of the things we've got to do is tone down the competitiveness and help kids learn to encourage one another how to help them learn to work together and bring back sandbox, for heaven's sakes. It's yeah. my turn and it's your turn. Play has just kind of been vaporized from our kids' lives as well. And play and sandbox is hand-in-hand with empathy building as well. So that's what we need to do, and it raises up a generation of not only kinder kids, but a more employable kids and kids who can get along. The next one is one that a lot of kids, not all of them, but I know certainly many kids, would have the most trouble with. Mm-hmm. And that's the moral courage. Yeah. Being a bystander versus being an upstander, as you call it. Courage is made up of habits. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned over and over again is that every child comes up to me and says, when I do workshops with particularly middle school where bullying is peaked, and I do the workshop, but I also show kids, here's some things you can do that are simple, that if you see somebody getting hurt, that you can do and stand in. For instance, you can stand a little closer to the victim. You draw the audience away from the when the bully, he wants power. Just stand for the other side. Mm-hmm. Or you can use a distraction. Hey, the teacher's coming. That'll disperse the group and you can help. You can always go up afterwards and support the child who was hurt. I'm so sorry that happened to you. That happened to me. Would you like me to walk you to the teacher? You can exit. Can't do anything. Don't stand there. You're giving the bully the power. What I did is I went through an, about six strategies that are called bully buster strategies. Mm-hmm. Child after child came up and said, thank you. Nobody's ever shown us how to be courageous, and we want to. Mm. And then you practice them as a family. You'll find strategies that work for your kids. Some kids are introverts. 
Some kids are extroverts. You're not going to change your kid's temperament, but you need to teach them strategies that they can use for life. Yeah. And yet again, it's, it's just tools. It's tools that you're giving them so that they know my son is very into rules. He loves, well, I don't know if he loves them, but he follows every rule that he can find. And so, you know, giving him rules on how to behave and how to act and how to do things that can make him a better person, it's perfect for him. And uh, he just loves to absorb that and then practice Well, I, I have to add on to this and yeah. give you accolades because one of the greatest parenting strategies that we can use as parents is to be able to understand our child, right. to be able to figure out what works for them. That's mm-hmm. empathizing. If you can be the parent who empathizes with the kid, you'll realize, first of all, they come as Russian roulette. I've got three kids that are as different yeah. as night and day. <laughs> so you've got to figure out what works for each kid. You may have a certain mantra in your house, but what's the thing that's going to help your child be the best they can be? Once you know that, there's your gold mine. Keep yeah. using it like you're doing with your child. You figured out what works, and that's called empathizing and perspective taking. Last is altruistic leadership. I mean, that's what the goal that you're aiming that's for, That's right? the goal, is to help the child realize he can better the world, not to win the Nobel Peace Prize, mm-hmm. but to make the world a better place, to figure out what your passion is, what ignites you, what lights up your world. We've actually discovered that a lot of our kids are so driven by us. Here's what you're going to be when you grow up. That by the time they get to, the study was done in Stanford, some of the best and the brightest, they said they're purposeless they don't know which one, what they want to be. So follow your child's passion. Figure out what interests him. And one of the best things you can do is find a service project that works that way. Sure. If your child uh, is really concerned about homelessness, well, that's the kid that can bring the overcoats to homeless people. Or if your child is really concerned about bullying, then that's the kid who can start the bully buster campaign. But one little other thing that's probably the best bit of research I've ever seen, start with one. Our biggest mistake that we do when we do service projects is have our kids collect 50,000 coins to send to Biafra. Now, that's good and that's golden, and it works for a kid who has abstract empathy, who can understand that child. But if you start face-to-face, every kid I interviewed when I was writing on Selfie, whose teachers would say, go interview that kid for some reason, he's really altruistic. Mm-hmm. I'd say, how'd you get that way? Every kid would say, it was how I was raised. So I'd say, please pray tell how you were raised. We always did something together as a family. But we started, every kid said, face to face. When I gave that man that overcoat, it was look in his eyes that said, I got to keep doing that again, mom. And the mom would say, we didn't have any overcoats left by the following day. Every child, you need to find what what lights them up, what they want to do to make a difference in the world. But start face to face because that connection with another human being there is nothing more powerful than lighting up your own world and your own light. Yeah, that's amazing. Like I said before, the book is great because it is a guide. I mean, it's not just a book about the me versus the we generation and turning our children into more we than me. It's a guide. It really is. It's a like a step-by-step guide to help caregivers and parents help their kids on the path to being more altruistic, have more empathy, and become more we. It's Thank you. And I, I think the other thing about this, I, what I was trying to do, what I was writing, is help parents realize that parenting isn't either or. It's helping my child be smart or be kind. Right. You've got to work on both these days. And what's happened is that in our parenting agendas, by all intention, we want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. We've kind of put empathy in the dormant stage. We've done it all on the, the tutoring, the sports, success. starting at age two. Yes. Let's redefine success a little more broadly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a child who feels with others and is a smart in that classroom. And that's going to be the win-win kid 
who's going to really make his mark in the world and do well without you someday. Dr. Michelle Borba, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. You're so welcome. Thank you. Next week, we'll be talking to Michael Bonner. You might remember him as the rapping teacher whose music video, Read It, went viral and earned him and his students an appearance on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. He has some interesting things to say about how passion is more important than programs and policies when it comes to effective teaching. Now, a final thought. Lena, a nonprofit that leverages technology in research about the impact of talk in early childhood development, recently released a long-term study called Language Experience in the Second Year of Life and Language Outcomes in Late Childhood. The study confirmed that two-way interaction between adults and infants correlates with increased IQ, verbal comprehension, vocabulary, and other language skills 10 years later. The biggest impact was seen in the 18 to 24-month age group. Lead author and Lena Senior Director of Research, Dr. Jill Gilkerson, told us, With research like this, we see its conversational turns that predicts outcomes more than socioeconomic status, and it's easier to change talking habits than it is to change income status. And while parents come to mind first, she hopes to share the findings with early childcare professionals in particular. She said, Many babies will spend more than half their waking hours with caretakers other than their parents. They have a lot of power to impact babies, and we want to incorporate turn-taking in their day so they can influence trajectories long-term. It's Thanksgiving, so no homework for this week. Instead, let's just remember to be grateful for all we have as we head into the holiday season. Personally, I'm thankful for the many, many people and organizations working to better the outcomes of children across the country. Thank you. Talk to you next week.